From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The General Services Administration has a new schedule for moving more functions to beta.sam.gov. GSA writes on the agency's Interact blog, Phase 1 on April 26th will change the look of the site to prepare for the merger of the beta site and the legacy site. The agency will merge the legacy site's functionality May 24th. Five weapon systems get high grades for cybersecurity from the Defense Department Office of Inspector General. All five of the programs the office reviewed are in the operations and sustainment phase of their acquisition cycles. FCW reports program offices have been updating cyber requirements the programs need to protect against new threats. A bill from Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland would make agencies find energy efficiency in federal office space. Cardin says he also might ask for cuts in the amount of space the government uses. Federal News Network reports Cardin says cutting office space would help taxpayers and allow for better provision of services. The Pentagon may choose to dump the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract if a judge agrees to hear arguments from Amazon Web Services about political interference. It would mean two years down the drain for the department's most important cloud computing contract. Tony Scott is CEO of the Tony Scott Group. He's former federal chief information officer. Tony, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This, this informational memo that the department sent to Congress was something I hadn't seen many of before. What do you think that says about the level of consideration the department's giving to actually backing out of JEDI? Well, I think not only the memo, but the rumors on the street are that that's, you know, under strong consideration. And, you know, I think it makes sense at this point. You've got a, a contract or requirement that's now almost four years old, and certainly a lot of things have changed since then. But I think it's also the practical realization that, you know, if you find yourself riding a dead horse, best to dismount and and start over. And, you know, I think the criticism of the contract in the first place are, you know, valid. Um, you know, even the DOD strategy says multi-cloud. Uh, and uh, certainly there's been a lot of developments in the cloud space in the last several years. So I think there's a bunch of great reasons to just drop it and start over. Let's pretend there never was a Jedi and the department is approaching this from the very beginning. What are the options that are available in the cloud space today, technologically, but also acquisition wise, so that this doesn't become another two to four year process? Well, certainly DOD has had a, a number of contracts that it's successfully um, uh, put out there and is actually fulfilling now. So one of the options is just to ride one of the existing um, uh, contracts. Um, but I don't think, you know, starting from scratch and, and starting over is such a bad idea. Certainly there's been a bunch of lessons learned and I think the whole procurement process could be done uh, much easier this time based on all the lessons that have been learned. What are the most important lessons that the department has learned and how to avoid them this time around, Tony? Well, I think, you know, the procurement process itself was considered to be uh, one that was had a lot of outside influences and, and certainly 
you know, any procurement the federal government does has the danger of having that, um, you know, be the the aura of it. And, and I think they've learned a lot about that. So uh, they could also set up an independent external panel, um, you know, to help, uh, you know, vet not only the uh, and, and create the contract in the first place, but um, even vet, uh, you know, potential um, uh, app applicants and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then lastly, I think, you know, probably the most important thing is take advantage of all the developments that have happened in the last three or four years and develop a contract that, um, you know, would really meet today's needs, not the needs of three or four years ago. So that leads me to the next, the extrapolation that strikes me, Tony, is if this is something the department was going to get into for 10 years, how do you write a contract that does exactly what you just said, but also addresses the needs of the department in 2026, you know, five years from now and 2031, 10 years from now? How does one write that kind of contract? Well, I think the best way to do it is to have competi competition. So if you have multiple vendors, you can take advantage of innovation that each of them might uh, develop. Um, it could be two or it could be three. I, I wouldn't say we need, you know, eight or 10. Um, but you really want to be able to take advantage of, uh, of R&D that happens in the marketplace, developments in technology, and it's not going to be even across all suppliers. Um, one year, one supplier is going to have better uh, advance uh, advancements the next year could be someone else um, so you really want to be able to take advantage of that but at the same time you want an architecture that allows you to move easily from one to the other should the need arise and I think those are all things that uh, should be built into the uh, next contract whatever form it takes um, it, this gets at the crux, though, it seems to me, of what the department has struggled with for not just in technology, but in weapon systems and every other kind of acquisition, and that is buying a capability and not buying a thing. Um, is this maybe the most important contract that the department has done from that perspective, Tony, to say to industry, we need to be able to do this in whatever way you're able to get us to it instead of listing a long list of requirements and it has to have this and this and this and this? Yeah, I, I think you're on the right track there because, as we know, this is a very fast-moving space. I mean, there's things that have been invented this last year that we weren't even thinking about two or three years ago when, uh, when Jedi was uh, originally conceived. So you really do want to be able to take in the new developments that uh, come along. And I think, I think along the lines of what you've suggested is exactly the right way. All too often in government contracts, we get too specific, uh, and then that ends up trapping us uh, later on. So to that end, is there something that exists now that the department could just, I mean, uh, maybe I'm sure I'm oversimplifying it, but just tag on to. DISA has uh, buying capability through MillCloud. There are any number of other vehicles. Isn't, is there something there or is this capability, is this requirement so complex that it needs to be its own special thing? Well, I think, you know, if, if I were in charge at this point, the first thing I would do is look around and see what else I could take advantage of, and primarily for speed reasons. You know, this has really been long delayed, and, and I certainly 
subscribe to the notion that there's a great need on the part of DOD for some of these capabilities. So anything that delays it further is bad news from, from that perspective. So the first thing I would do is see what other capabilities I could leverage. But it doesn't mean that you know I would abandon the notion of, of redoing it um, uh, and, and maybe uh, you know bringing in some of the other things that uh, have come along since then and, and wrapping it up in a, in a in a larger deal. Tony Scott, terrific insight as always. I appreciate your time. Great. Thanks so much. Up next, missing data on sexual harassment and assault cases in the military. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the difference finding that data could mean in preventing cases. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department estimates nearly 50,000 civilian employees experienced work-related sexual harassment and another 2,500 experienced sexual assault in fiscal year 2018. The Government Accountability Office says the Pentagon can do more to track reports of these incidents. Brenda Farrell is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at GAO. Brenda, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this work, visibility over both types of incidents, sexual harassment and sexual assault, is hindered by guidance and information sharing challenges. Tell me about both of those challenges that the department is up against, Brenda. Well, visibility, as you're noting, is a, is a key challenge for DOD in this area. It's difficult to set policy and improve your programs if you don't have the data to help uh, determine what the trends are and where you should be targeting your, your resources. And this report addresses a number of challenges with the gaps in the uh, guidance and the data collection and uh, differences in terminology with both the sexual harassment programs as well as the sexual assault. You cite the numbers uh, about sexual assault, for example, and then you write these data do not include all incidents of sexual assault reported over this time period. How do we know that, Brenda? Well, as you noted, the, the estimates are quite different from uh, the data that we reviewed for reported incidents of harassment and assault. The estimates are from a survey that uh, DOD conducts biannually. It's based on self-reported data for the prior year to the survey. We looked at reported cases over a five-year period and found that there were 370 cases of reported sexual harassment incidents, as well as 199 on sexual assault. That's quite a difference in the reported and the estimates, especially since the estimates are for the one year and the reported cases are for five years. Now, we all know that often uh, an individual who's a victim of harassment or assault does not want to report because they, they want to move on, uh, they think nothing will be done, uh, you know, and, and, and other reasons uh, that people don't report. But we know that there's gaps in the uh, guidance, and that's the reason we say that because there's gaps in the guidance, there's only a fraction of the cases actually being reported. The gaps are, uh, there's uh, data lacking with those who are victims of sexual assault in the United States, uh, those who are victims of sexual assault and are employed by defense agencies, and those who are uh, military dependents. 
I have spoken about a, a particular problem in the department with you, other colleagues of yours at GAO, uh, DOD inspector general's offices about the challenges that are presented when each service, each organization inside the department does the same thing a different way. And it strikes me that you're getting at that issue here. DOD civilian employees' ability to make restricted reports of sexual assault varies across components. Is that part of the problem here, is that everybody does it differently? That's one of the many problems that we found uh, in terms of the reporting options uh, for sexual assault. As you may know, military personnel who are victims of sexual assault have two reporting options. They're called restricted and unrestricted. The restricted was devised to help the victim. A victim could make a complaint and receive health services and counseling, but there would not be an investigation. Uh, for civilians, the process has been different, except in the Air Force. The Air Force allows the restricted option to be offered to civilians worldwide. The Air Force has an exception to the sexual assault prevention policy that allows them to do this back uh, several years ago. Then they, that exception ran out. They asked for another exception to continue allowing that. They received that exception. The last exception ran out in uh, 2019. So the Air Force has chosen to uh, continue to offer that particular option. This uh, is something that other service officials told us would be beneficial and it should be consistent across the department, especially since often you have civilian employees in joint environments and why should the rules be different depending upon what component that you're working for. So th that is a, a clear example of a inconsistent reporting option for sexual assault currently offered in DOD. Yeah, that, that piqued at, uh, our interest because we would normally, at the end of a segment like this, we'd put up a number or some type of contact information. If you think you've been a victim of this, here's the number to call, and there isn't really one, is there, Brenda? There's not one, and, and, and that's the problem with both the harassment as well as uh, sexual assault. For, for sexual harassment, there's actually four options, uh, depending upon eligibility, that a DOD federal employee could utilize to make a complaint. Uh, that varies from most viewers are probably familiar with the equal employment opportunity process, but there's also a military equal uh, opportunity process as well as command investigation. And the fourth option for reporting sexual harassment is the anti-harassment programs throughout DOD. We have about a minute left, uh, Brenda. There are 19 recommendations. Are there some of these that are uh, vitally important to start on now or some of these that would be relatively quick to implement or more important to implement? Well, we think that in order to implement these recommendations, you know, sometimes it takes DOD months to write a uh, revised policy and sometimes it takes a decade. This is something that's going to need sustained leadership to make sure that all of these policies are reviewed and, and adjustments are made where necessary and there needs to be sustained oversight for this very key part of DOD's workforce. Brenda Farrell, thanks very much as always. Thank you. Coming next, the military may be preparing for the wrong readiness. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new normal for great power competition. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Air Force Chief of Staff General Charles C.Q. Brown and Marine Corps Commandant General David Berger say fixation on readiness 
stands at the military's way of deploying resources it needs for great power competition. Both leaders wrote in the Washington Post recently about rethinking and maybe redefining readiness. Seamus Daniels is Associate Director and Associate Fellow for Defense Budget Analysis, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's writing about readiness in Defense One. Seamus, welcome. It's good to see you. What jumped out at you in that op-ed that the generals wrote? Francis, thanks for having me. Um, what really stood out to me was this focus on moving away from short-term readiness, which is classically how policymakers think of readiness, um, to a long-term focus on readiness in terms of modern, modernizing the force. Now, typically when we're talking about readiness, we're talking about the preparedness uh, of the force of the military to fight today. And you know, as policymakers consider this, they consider in the short term in terms of trade-offs uh, between modernization uh, and force structure. But Brown and Berger are really saying that we need to take a long-term view of readiness to work on modernizing the force, developing new capabilities to prepare us for strategic competition with China and Russia per the national defense strategy. What's the planning and the budgeting difference between the way we're thinking about readiness now and the way that the generals are outlining it, Seamus? In terms of the budget, when we're talking about short-term readiness, we're really talking about operation and maintenance funds. And those goes to things like funding operations today, um, as well as funding maintenance for units and equipment. Uh, but if we're taking a more, if we're taking a longer term view of readiness, we should see greater resources allocated towards uh, research and development, RDT and E, uh, as well as procurement, so we can really develop the capabilities that we're going to need in the future fight. It strikes me that you get at the resources issue directly, though, when you write in this piece, Congress has long guarded legacy equipment that the department has sought to eliminate. That strikes me as the biggest challenge, not the modernization plans. We've seen over the last five years or so a, a really detailed and, and, and active modernization plan on the part of the Army. The Navy has talked very avidly about how many ships in the fleet and what that composition looks like. Air Force, same with squadrons. So those plans exist for what the next thing should be. And the issue becomes when do the services get, are, when are they able to get rid of stuff they don't need that doesn't fit that vision? Is that maybe the biggest challenge here, Seamus? Yeah, Francis, you and I both know that Congress has the power of the purse. And so they're the people who are really able to allocate those resources and decide what the priorities are of the department. Um, but as you rightly point out, if they're focused on legacy equipment, um, that means that aren't, there aren't the adequate resources to actually fund these modernization plans like you're talking about with the Army and with the Navy. What the department really has to do is find a willing and able partner in Congress um, to really convince them that they're managing and mitigating the risks of today, that they're willing to manage those risks to then free up some of force structure, get rid of legacy, get rid of outdated equipment, so then you can use those funds for modernization. And I think you know that's particularly imperative today uh, when we're looking at a flattening defense budget top line and a potentially a defense budget that could be declining in the future. So we've, we're talking so far about the line of thinking at the chief level. You write in this piece, DOD must capably manage the high demand signal from the combatant commands that oversee the United States' presence and operations abroad. 
there's going to be a lot of demand signal from all of the, the commands asking for stuff, for capabilities, for people. How does one manage that in the context of this long-term readiness capability, Seamus? Well, we know that policymakers simply can't focus on modernizing the force. They still have to address the threats of today. So it's not a complete black and white issue. Um, but the real question is, how can you manage those risks without using all of your resources today and having none to actually focus on modernizing? Um, and the combatant commands really demand, they have an insatiable demand um, for forces uh, to use in operations abroad. And yes, it's important to manage the risks to respond to threats abroad, but we have to do that with a more holistic view uh, in terms of balancing those threats and being able to save resources for modernization priorities. You stole the word I wanted to use in the next question, Seamus, and that is, should we be thinking about this then, not short-term versus long-term readiness, but all of this as readiness in a holistic manner? Yeah, I, I think we should, um, because I think it's really a question of striking that right balance. Um, Obviously, we have to respond to threats today. Uh, that's something that we can't leave service members at risk. We can't leave our country at risk. Um, but you know, we should think of readiness as existing along a spectrum between the short term and the long term, um, from the strategic to the tactical level. So I really think that Brown and Berger's proposal for this readiness framework that uses data to inform decisions and inform trade-offs between responding to today's threats and prioritizing the future is a great step forward as long as we're taking the right steps to actually create that framework. Seamus Daniels, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Francis. You can find a link to Seamus's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.